Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. I don't know if you realize this, but the British royal family is funded in part by what is called a sovereign grant, which is basically a tax that's collected from every British citizen to pay for all the official duties of the royal family and all of their activities, not just themselves, a salary which is provided to all of the royals, but then the upkeep of their properties, all of their events, the massive staff that uh, has to surround them every year. Last year, the sovereign grant was approximately $103 million that they received from taxpayers. In addition to that, they have their own businesses and properties that are constantly generating another 90 to 100 million dollars a year from tourism and publishing and other investments. And on top of all that, legally, the crown does not have to pay taxes in Britain. They're exempt. They, um, they have no income tax. They have no property tax, no capital gains tax. Although Queen Elizabeth, uh, beginning in 1996, voluntarily paid tax every year. She was not obligated to do so. Those, I guess you might say, are the privileges of royalty. You collect taxes on everyone else, but you're not required to pay tax, even though the queen did it voluntarily. Like it or not, that's the way monarchies work. That's the way they've always worked. Rulers like that are not under obligation to pay taxes because in a monarchy, normally, taxes are partly, if not largely, for the purpose of supporting the monarch of actually paying for them. Now, this is uh, important to understand as we come to our passage this morning because it's dealing with these very issues. It's dealing with the issues of taxes and royalty. And um, and if we're going to understand what Matthew is saying to us this morning, what Jesus is uh, relaying to us, if we're going to understand that, we have to understand that kind of uh, a background because in Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27, It draws on these basic fundamental principles of monarchs and taxes. Listen to how Jesus uses this as an explanation about his relationship to what was called the temple tax. We read in verse 24, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open his mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now, it's important for us to understand what's going on here uh, if we're going to rightly understand this passage. Uh, There is obviously a lot of language here about taxes, um, but this is not primarily about taxes, not in the normal sense that you and I think of taxes. This, This is not about civic tax or government tax or income tax or anything. This is about a temple tax, which was more akin to an offering than it was a tax. 
People read this uh, all the time and immediately begin to wonder what is the message here regarding our relationship to the government and our relationship to taxes, whether or not we should pay taxes or if Jesus is trying to communicate some stealthy message about our freedom from taxation, whether taxes are justified or any of those other things. But that's not really the issue. The issue here is more about worship than it is about taxes. Because the primary controversy revolves around a temple tax, an offering a matter of religious duty, not governmental revenue. And because it concerns the temple, it concerns God himself. And, and since it concerns God, it concerns what you owe to God as much as what you owe to the temple and how you should respond to God's rightful place. The remarkable thing, though, in all of this is that Jesus is taking all of those things that are rightfully God's and he's claiming them for himself. The things that men and women owe to God, he is suggesting that they owe to him. Specifically in this situation, the right to the offerings that go to the temple. And so this becomes not just an issue of Jesus and taxes, or even not even just really an issue of, of Jesus claiming a right to these offerings. It is as much an issue of these Jewish officials completely overlooking all of this, completely overlooking his rights, completely overlooking what he is worthy of, and actually demanding from Jesus the very things that he should be demanding from them. They were demanding things that they had no right to demand and withholding things that they properly owed to Christ. And yet through it all, not only did Jesus not take offense, but he went out of his way not to offend these men, lest the gospel message somehow be obscured. Now, all of this just highlights the special status that Jesus has among all other men. A special status that should have been recognized by the Jews, even though it wasn't. But there were a series of arrangements that you could identify, that you could uh, locate here, a series of arrangements that highlight this special status uh, that Jesus had. The first most basic one involved the responsibility for the temple tax. That's that's the first thing here. Uh, this This is what the controversy is all about. In verse 24, these collectors of the two drachma tax... Come to Peter and say, does your, uh, does your teacher not pay the tax? They're referring to this specific uh, uh, support for the temple, for its maintenance. A lot of people, uh, as I said, assume this was discussing some sort of government tax, perhaps a tax for Rome. And there certainly were all kinds of taxes for Rome. Rome found all kinds of ways to maximize their tax revenue on a wide variety of taxes, taxes on land, taxes on produce, taxes on animals, taxes on professions and occupations, sales tax, customs tax, transit taxes, census taxes. There was lots of taxation in the Roman Empire. But the specific amount of uh, the tax, this two drachma tax, makes it crystal clear that this is a reference to a particular tax for the temple. We know this on the basis of Exodus 30, verse 13 through 16, when the Lord commanded 
Every Israelite shall give a half shekel, which is essentially equivalent to two drachmas, or if you want to think about it in Roman terms, two denarii. Every Israelite shall give a half shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more. The poor shall not give less than the half shekel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting. So this wasn't a progressive tax. You know, the rich didn't have higher rates of tax. Everyone had the exact same amount. So when you hear the reference to the two drachma tax, you know exactly what this is. This half shekel, two drachma. In fact, that's what it became known in the first century because shekels were not as frequently in use. It just became known and referred to as the two drachma tax. It was generally collected in the month leading up to Passover every year and So officials from the temple would be sent out from Jerusalem and would fan out across the country with particular roles and lists of people who had already paid or had not paid and and try to collect on everyone. Now, because this was not a Roman tax, there was actually no legal authority behind it. That is to say, it was not compulsory it was paid voluntarily, and, and Jewish leaders really couldn't enforce it, but they looked at it as a matter of devotion. To not pay it would call your spiritual commitment into question, and so they were careful to keep records of who paid and who didn't pay, which for them was practically a record of your spirituality. So if you're not going to pay this tax, it, it was, at least in their minds, going to reflect poorly on you. And so by them approaching and asking Peter this question, it implies that according to their records, Jesus hadn't paid the tax this year. These guys, um, as I said, were appointed by the temple, not by Rome, and they scattered across, beating the bushes, as it were, so that everyone would pay. But this may have even been more than just a routine inquiry. The, The way the question is phrased is more of an accusation than just a a question. It implies that Jesus is refusing to pay, that he's withholding something, that this is a a mark against his character. This might very well be another one of their attempts to find another angle to criticize him. They were always trying to catch him in some violation, some error of the law. This might be another one of their schemes, or, or maybe they were just doing their job and working through the roles. Whatever it is, Peter uh, is, is um, uh, confronted by them, and in verse 25, he blurts out the response, yes. Uh, even though he apparently had never spoken to Jesus about this, he just assumes, yes, he, he'll pay it. Yeah, I don't know if he's just determined to defend his friend and, and his master, or if he got some other motivation, but Peter is probably just operating on an assumption because he, he uh, seemingly was going to have the first conversation about this whenever he entered the house, which he does. He enters the house when Jesus is staying there. This is probably Peter's house in Capernaum. You can still see the remains of it today if you go there. This is the place Jesus typically stayed when he was in Capernaum. So he goes back to his house, and, and uh, 
Jesus greets him when he comes through the door with a question that's aimed to highlight a fundamental understanding, a failure really on the part of Peter and these men, fundamental refusal of these tax gatherers, these uh, temple tax gatherers to see the true identity of Christ. And he highlights what should have been obvious to Peter as well as to these men that they should not be asking Jesus for this kind of tax. They should not be asking offerings from him. They really ought to be bringing offerings to him because he has a special status. He's not like other men, which he highlights by discussing a, you might say, a second arrangement that, that uh, brings this to the fore. You know, the temple tax is the basic arrangement, but, but then Jesus begins to discuss in verse 25 through 26 the rights of royal sons. As I said, this all sort of arises from a question that Jesus asked as soon as Peter walks in the house, meaning that Peter... Peter didn't catch Jesus up with the conversation. Matthew's very clear that Jesus asked Peter first. So he's, he's demonstrating already his supernatural knowledge, his divine insight into this, the whole conversation that Peter just had with these officials. But Jesus doesn't ask Peter details of the conversation. He, he knows already what's going on. Instead, he asked a question really about the implications of this. He, he asked a question about the kings of the earth and the way those kings collect taxes. Now, Jesus raises this issue by way of analogy or comparison. He's not changing the subject. He's not really talking about taxation at the civic level or the monarchies or any of those other things. He's not really talking about governmental taxes or the kind of taxes that kings might impose. He's just making a simple analogy about who gets taxed in a monarchy. And he wants to compare a certain element of how and, and on whom kings levy taxes so that he can make a point about this temple tax. The question he asks is rhetorical. Do they collect taxes from their sons or from others? And the implication is that they do not collect taxes from their sons. They don't collect taxes from their families. Rulers always exempted their families and those closest to them from taxes. Whether kings or emperors, they all assessed taxes in order to support their family along with whatever kind of governmental functions may be there. And so since the purpose of the tax was to support their actual families, it wouldn't make sense for them to tax their families just to give the money right back to them. They only collected taxes, as Jesus is pointing out, from their citizens. Members of the royal family were exempt. Now, this might offend your sensibilities if you were born and raised in a democratic society where everyone is uh, supposedly equal and paying their fair share, but this is pretty standard in monarchies. Even today, as I said, the British royal family is exempt from paying taxes. So, so for Peter, the, the answer is obvious. For anyone living under monarchy, the answer would be obvious. The king does not collect taxes from his sons. The sons, as a matter of fact, were usually 
part of the royal household. They might have lived in different villas, different buildings, but all of them were still dependent for their entire life on the king. So basically, for the king to assess taxes on his sons would be to assess taxes on himself, which is the way Peter responds. He says, kings obviously collect taxes from others. And Jesus draws out the point then, so the sons are free. The one, the one to whom taxes are paid does not collect taxes from his sons. The sons are free from the obligation. Now, Jesus doesn't really spell out the implications beyond that, but it's obvious as you're reading through the text. Temple taxes are paid not just toward the temple, but ultimately toward God himself. And if you are a part of God's royal family, you should not be paying. That's the implication. Instead, you should be receiving. But Jesus is God's son. And so he's not required, he should not be required to pay this temple tax. This is really not an issue of economics. This is really not an issue of capacity. This is not an issue of whether Jesus had the money or not. This is an issue of who is rightfully due for uh, these taxes to receive them or to give them. And Jesus is pointing out he's not like other Jews. He is a member of God's family in that sense. This is um, obviously a principle that applies uniquely to Jesus. No one else can make this claim. No one could claim to be the ripe recipient of the offerings that people give to God. No one really could make that kind of Uh, of a statement without coming across as incredibly arrogant and capricious. This This is Jesus making an implication about himself that would be a mark against his character if it was not true. If you were just an ordinary man and you begin to suggest that other people owe to you what they ought to be giving to God... If you're just an ordinary person and you're demanding that people give you praise and they give you offerings and they give you worship and they give you obedience and they give you all those other things, that's an incredibly arrogant thing to do. But Peter understood what Jesus is saying here. And he has a choice. He has a choice. He could either decide that Jesus is out of line he could decide that, that, that this, is, this is too much. I mean, this man is, is uh, some sort of egomaniac. He could decide to distance himself from Jesus and from all his teaching. Or he could agree that Jesus is unique. That, that he really is different. He has a different status. He really is worthy of everything that God is worthy of. And of course, we know how Peter decided. Remember back in Caesarea Philippi, it was Peter who was already declaring that Jesus is the Son of God. And he would go on to boldly proclaim that throughout the rest of his days. This is Jesus' point. He's not trying to suggest that as a, as a Christian, you, you may be exempt from government taxes that somehow he's opposed to taxes or any of those things. In fact, the Scripture is quite clear. We ought to pay taxes to whom taxes are due, Romans thirteen seven. Pay to all what is owed 
taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. Later in Matthew 22, whenever they asked Jesus specifically about the tax given to Caesar, you may remember he answers them by saying, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So Jesus clearly supports the paying of taxes. The issue isn't, isn't civic taxes. The issue is worship. The issue is whether or not Jesus should be expected to offer worship in the temple or to receive it. And Peter understands what he's saying here. Ultimately, Peter, he would defend this truth with his life. He would go on to re- write two letters that come down to us as First and Second Peter, talking over and over again about the glory of Christ. It's one of the key themes of Second, first and second Peter, the fact that this Christ that he came to know while he was on the earth was glorious. But even more significant, this man, Peter, would give his life for this truth, for the reality that Jesus was unique. He was different. So Peter understands all this. He accepts all this. He understands that it would not be right to ask Jesus to make this payment. Of course, uh, he had already told the men that Jesus would, so he's in a bit of a dilemma. He spoke before he really understood, which really brings up a third arrangement that Jesus um, puts forward here, a third arrangement that also highlights Jesus' unique status, and that's the um, representation of sovereign support. It shows up in verse 27. He tells Peter, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes out. And when you open the fish's mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. This is an unmistakable provision of God, unmistakable arrangement where God provided for Jesus so that Jesus didn't end up taking his two drachma tax directly out of his funds. As I said, this shekel that... um, was found in the fish's mouth, it actually was not that common in those days. The Jewish shekel was not a common uh, coin. So it makes the miracle all the more unique that of all the coins that were found, this is exactly the uh, exact precise amount of, of uh, tax that needed to be paid, a half shekel for Jesus and a half shekel for Peter. Now, this, by the way, was not an insurmountable sum of money for for Jesus or Peter. It's very likely that they had the money on hand in the money bag that they carried around from the, the gifts and offerings that people would give to Jesus for his support. They probably had this amount of money on them. But that's really not the issue. That's not why Jesus sends Peter to the seashore to fish out this fish. He's emphasizing to Peter his exclusion, his freedom from having to pay this tax. He's demonstrating that even if these temple authorities are not willing to exempt Jesus from paying it, God exempted him in a way by providing an alternative source of revenue, source of payment. And Jesus clearly states that he's doing all of this not because he feels under any obligation 
His motive is clear there in verse 27. He says it was not to give offense. He was willing to do something he didn't have to do. He even knew probably that this money would be misused in some way, and it was incredibly unnecessary. There was so much revenue from this tax in the first century that eventually the temple officials didn't even know how to use it all. They started covering the doors of the temple in solid gold because they just had so much money. When they ran out of that, when they finished covering the doors, then they fashioned a gold vine over the top of one of the doors with bunches of grapes cast in gold, and the bunches themselves were said to be the size of a human being. So just enormous, gaudy amounts of gold. And all the while, Jesus said, they had turned the temple into a den of thieves. They were charging exorbitant rates on money exchange. They were selling pigeons to poor people for, uh, for, uh, ra- for, for prices and fees that were way beyond what they should have. Now, Jesus knew all of this. He knew the corruption around the temple, and yet he still was willing to pay this. He was willing to pay this so that they were not unnecessarily offended and the gospel was not unnecessarily hindered. Again, this isn't because Jesus was afraid of offending people. We know that. There are plenty of times when he was willing to stand up to their hypocrisy and their abusive practices. He faced their hostility over and over again. But in this particular situation, where the issue had primarily to do with his personal privilege. This is really about his personal privilege. He had no problem setting that aside because he didn't want to cause offense. This is the pathway that the apostles would follow. You may remember in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul's discussing his right to be compensated for his work. He says that he set aside that right In 1 Corinthians 9, 12, if others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And he goes on to say later in that chapter, he says, I'm free from all people, but I've made myself a servant or a slave to all. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some, and I do all of this for the sake of the gospel. This is the heart of what Jesus is getting at here. Uh, Just as it's the heart of every sincere disciple since then, a willingness to set aside your own rights, your own conveniences, uh, so as not to put any kind of unnecessary offense in the way of the gospel. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with the ministry. This, by the way, even had an impact on Peter. Later on, when he's writing his letter, he urges fellow believers, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And he goes on to get more specific in the next verse. For the Lord's sake... Be subject to every human institution, whether to a king 
as one in authority or governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. So he's telling them, you know, we have to maintain a certain level of honorable living before the outside world so as not to put any unnecessary hindrance in the way of the gospel. That may very well mean you yielding and submitting to unjust rulers and unjust kings and unjust governments, all the while doing everything you can to glorify God by your good deeds. This was Christ. He had every right to make the the claim on these gifts. He could have walked out the door and he could have told those guys, hey, don't ask for this from me. You ought to be giving this stuff to me. That's not who he is. Because our Savior is gracious and he's merciful. He was not going to go out and make those kinds of personal demands that they might not stand in the way of the gospel. His whole life was one of grace and mercy. But don't misread that. This temporary season of grace and mercy won't last forever. You you still owe everything to Him. And you may not have been willing to give it right now. In fact, you may be focused on all the things that you think God ought to be giving to you. But that's not the way it works. See, He is God's Son. And He has the right to claim everything from you. And just because He's not demanding it, just because He's being gracious with you, don't imagine that that arrangement has changed. One day, you will face the judgment if you continue to refuse Him, if you continue to recognize Him, if you continue to resist offering to Him everything that is His due. And that's the day when His grace runs out, at least towards you. And His judgment is all you'll know. Father, we are grateful for uh, the Word. Again, it is clear. It is compelling. It is rich because it is about our Savior. We're thankful for Him. Thankful that He has given to us so kindly and been so patient and gracious with us. We pray, O Lord, that uh, as we reflect on this passage today, that we would reflect on everything we do owe to our Savior and be ready and willing always to give it. He is so kind. He is so patient. He is so merciful to us. And now, in response to all of that, we want to offer to Him everything that we are because He is worthy of all those things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.